Hello and welcome to the One Foot Down Podcast. This is our 23rd episode. A lot has happened since we last recorded one of these podcasts. It's been about two weeks. Today on the podcast, uh, one of our writers from One Foot Down is making his first appearance. You know him on the site as pburns2010. Uh, his full name is Patrick Burns. Pat, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm going to have to apologize to everyone that I don't have the uh, dulcet Canadian tones of our friend Lars. Yeah, that can be tough to beat. Uh, he's one of the, the best guys on our podcast. All right, so like I said, we had a lot of stuff happen over the past two weeks, um, and we're just going to basically run through the big news items that have happened uh, in fighting Irish football. Uh, the first one we're going to start with is one George Atkinson the third. Um, He's a true junior, just finished up his junior season at Notre Dame. Declares early for the NFL. Uh, I would have to say a bit of a shocker, I think, for most Notre Dame fans. Um, what do you think of uh, GA3's decision to leave early? Did it make sense to you? Um, I think initially when I first heard that he was leaving early, I was trying to put two and two together because it just made zero sense. Um, obviously, the thing came out right before the Rutgers game. He got suspended for uh, tweeting during a team meal or texting during a team meal. Um, so obviously you could see there was some sort of disconnect between GA3 and the coaching staff. Um, but after I thought a little bit more about it, you know, him declaring for the draft isn't the most ridiculous thing that I could think of him doing. Um, as a running back, uh, going into the NFL, one of the most important things is that you don't have a lot of mileage on you. Um, running backs tend to burn out very quickly in the NFL, so the earlier you can get out of school, the better. Um, so he'll have some tread left on the tires. Uh, he's going to be a combine monster. Um, I have a strong feeling he's going to run an amazing 40. He might be the, one of the fastest running backs um, at the combine. Um, obviously, like I said, the relationship with Brian Kelly and the whole staff seemed to be strained, especially after his dad went and popped off on a radio show. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing that, that really makes it, I think, not a horrible decision and not even a bad decision is – I don't know that he was going to play enough next year to raise his stock, and his stock might actually have fallen next year because they might have wondered why wasn't he playing more? Why did he get passed up by, you know, a redshirt freshman and a sophomore and Tarian Folston and Greg Bryant? And I think those two are going to play way more than him. So um, I think he's getting while the getting's good, and thinks he's going to see some more opportunity in the NFL. Let's talk about what you think he's going to do with the combine. I just pulled up some of the uh, results from last year. Um, I'm looking at the top three. Well, there's a bunch of guys who tied for second. Um, I don't think this is just running backs, but the f leader last year was Marquise Goodwin with a 4-2-7, and then Tavon Austin, McCaleb, Swope all ran a 4-3-4. Do you think he's going to be down in that area? I think he's probably going to run sub 4-4. I don't think you can get a, a college scholarship as as a track member running the 100 without doing something along those lines. Obviously, there's, you know, there's a lot of combine pressure that he might, you know, he might run a little slower than he wants to. But um, I think if he doesn't do that, I think he's going to have a tough time getting drafted. Yeah, sub 4-4 four, four would make him right around top 10 in the entire combine. Um, yeah. Do you think, do you think he'll struggle in some of the uh, cone drills? I think that's probably not his strong suit. No, he, uh, despite how much he tried to move around on the field, I don't think quick cuts are his uh, his strong point. Yeah, um, I thought, you know, it's it's tough to really look at this news from the player's point of view. Um, obviously, you brought up his dad, and I think, you know, it's safe to say that his dad is kind of a helicopter parent. 
I'm interested to see if his son does end up making it in the NFL, what his dad kind of inserts into commentary. About Notre Dame and everybody. I can see yeah, that. Yeah, it's just stuff like that. You know, now that he's no longer at the university, what's he going to talk about? Um, but, you know, it, on the one side, I, I agree with his decision. I, I think, you know, in a way it's okay for him to be selfish in this way to go with the NFL, try to, you know, get paid, whatever, whatever. But on the other hand, it's almost like, you know, he could have helped the team next year, whether he was first string or fourth string, and I think that kind of irks me a little bit, especially when, you know, he has a decent chance of not even getting drafted. So do you have some of those conflicting feelings as well? Um, I do. I can I can see where people would say, you know, me first instead of team first uh, mentality after he left. But, I mean, if that's the case... Do you want him as part of your team if he's a me first guy, or don't you want him out of there? It's kind of addition by subtraction, and obviously, you know, we don't have insight into the inner workings of the program and everything. But um, if that's the type of personality he is, and I don't think that's what Brian Kelly and his staff really want to put together at Notre Dame. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's hard to get a read on Atkinson with his time at Notre Dame. Uh, didn't really get to know much of his personality or anything like that, so. Can't say it was a bad apple, but uh, you know we don't know what the team's going to look like next year without him. In terms of some of those other players stepping up, let's let's go to our second topic here. Um, we had two other players declare early for the draft. Uh, Stefan Tua at the defensive end, um, not too much of a surprise, although he did yank our chain months ago and sort of said he's coming back. We don't know <laughs> if the uh, observer kind of twisted his words around or whatever, um, and also tight end. Troy Nicholas leaves early. That one was a kind of a shocker, um, but maybe not to some people. Who do you think is the bigger loss in terms of looking towards 2014 and the team trying to be as good as it can be next year? Um, I actually think the bigger loss is Nicholas for next season. Um, I think both in the coaching staff having time to plan for Tuit leaving, um, as well as I think Tuit's position is a little bit more easily um, covered up uh, by scheme or by um, simply by rotation. Um, and then also last season, I don't think that Tuit was himself. Uh, he was playing through injuries all through last season. So the production we got last season from Stefan Tuit um, might be similar to something we would get out of somebody who's less talented but maybe more healthy. Um, and we'll see how the young guys develop and are able to cover that position up. Um, I think I think Nicholas, going into 2014, probably would have made one or two All-American lists um, out there. Um, I think he was probably one of the best tight ends that was coming back uh, with uh, Safarian Jenkins leaving early. Uh, so I thought that was his that was kind of his role to take uh, as the best tight end in the nation. Um, and I think the suddenness that he's leaving the program with and declaring for the draft probably caught everybody off guard, including inside the program. Um, I think it's going to have the coaching staff scrambling just a little bit to try and fill his position. Um, obviously, Ben Koyak is there. Uh, he played a little bit different position. He played that move tight end and not the inline tight end that Nicholas was playing. So um, I'm interested to see how much we miss Nicholas's blocking ability um, and if any of the young guys can step up into that role. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Um... You know, the past two years, they've gone with a lot of two tight end sets. Um, with Nicholas leaving, do you think they'll kind of get away from that scheme a little bit next year with just Nicholas as the only really proven tight end? 
I think that's definitely a possibility um, because once you bring Golson back into the into the fold, you don't have to rely as much on point of attack blocking because you'll have that um, additional blocker taken out of the play accounting for Golson. Um, so I think that'll be part of it. Um, I also think that with the depth we have in our receiving core, um, we can run eight guys out there, nine guys out there. Um, so I don't think we're going to be afraid to go four wide if we think we've got an advantage there. Um, and we can also go five wide, which I know a lot of Notre Dame fans that are listening to this podcast just had <laughs> flashbacks. Um, but with Golson in the backfield, um, it helps out a lot. And I don't think, even though Koyak is a great receiver, I don't see him in a Tyler Eifert type role where even if we go five wide, he'll be out there on the field. Um, I think we're going to start seeing a little uh, a little smaller five-wide formations and um, maybe get some more speed out on the field as opposed to having a large target. Do you think this means we'll actually see a slot receiver in a regular role in 2014? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to say that because we haven't seen it yet under Brian Kelly. <laughs> um, we've, seen, we've seen the slot slash running back uh, for so long, um, and we've seen so many formation changes just as far as, you know, um, putting large tight ends in the slot for blocking or uh, James Onwalu out there um, for a blocking, basically tight end extended from the line. Um, I, I don't see us using a normal slot receiver, quote-unquote normal slot receiver. So do you think there'll be mostly uh, two wide receivers, uh, two tight ends, and a running back? you think that's probably going to be what we'll look at next year? Um, I think that's what Brian Kelly would like to do, but I would imagine that would require one of the tight ends, either the one one of the ones that we've recruited or um, one of the ones that's on the roster right now to step up. Um, I think we'll probably default to using um, to using three wide receivers, but like I said, I don't think that that third wide receiver is going to be your typical slot receiver. I think it's just going to be another uh, downfield threat or a blocking wide receiver. All right, uh, let's go on to our next question here. Um, lost another player, except only for the spring semester. Tavares Daniels suspended over an academic matter, um, depending on how you talk to it. It seemed like he was on some sort of probation already, and his GPA dipped too low, so he has to sit out spring practice. He should be back in the summer. Um, I'm not sure how much worry there is that if he comes back or not. Um, he did mention on Twitter that he will be coming back, and I'm sure the school will let him back in, and we're not going to have any problems with that. Um, how much of a, how much is it going to stink for the offense, especially with Golson coming back, not having Daniels there for spring practice? Um, I think that's actually a big, a big uh, hit. Um, I think they would have had a lot of time to get back in the groove of things at, during spring practice. Um, that being said, I think both Golson and Daniels have a little bit of sandlot in them, and I think that they're probably both at their best when something breaks down as a as a tandem. Um, I kind of think that uh, Daniels needed the time more than Golson did. Um, Brian Kelly's offense is a lot of vertical stem routes, and uh, it requires the wide receiver to be able to read the coverage correctly and make the correct break or sit down or um, continue going down the field. And I think Daniels, more than any of the other receivers, at least visibly to us on television, um, missed the most of his reads. Um, so I think he needed the time more than Golson did. But obviously the most important thing is that he gets back in the classroom and you know gets his schoolwork back in order. 
Yeah, just to build off what you were saying, it, it can be a lot easier for a quarterback to go out there and practice and work on some of the things he needs to work on. With a wide receiver, you kind of almost have to be working with your quarterback in order to get better. And Daniels is going to be missing that at least for, I don't know, three and a half months or whatever, how long uh, this semester is. Is there a, a wide receiver you think is going to step up in the spring while Daniels isn't on the roster? Um, I'm interested to see what uh, Corey Robinson does as more of a full-time mm-hmm. um, X wide receiver. Um, I'm also interested to see what Will Fuller can do if he can if he can grow out of. It's kind of I kind of put Will Fuller and Chris Brown into that same bucket of these are the guys that we put in the slot when we wanted to throw down the field mm-hmm. um, during their freshman years. So I'm interested to see if he's able to grow into a more of a well-rounded receiver, kind of in the TJ Jones mold without the uh, without the elite size that. Corey Robinson has, um, and probably without some of the um, jumping ability that Tavares Daniels has, but um, I'm interested to see if he grows into a bigger role also. Fuller had a pretty amazing freshman season, I think. Uh, I guess amazing, as amazing as you could say for someone who caught just six balls. Uh, He averaged 26.67 yards per catch, and I think if he had caught that one in the Rutgers game, it probably would have been over 30 on the season. Pretty crazy for someone who's listed uh, generously at six foot to uh, be so good downfield catching the ball. Do you agree with that? I do. He kind of, actually, this is kind of a blast from the past. He kind of reminded me a lot of Joey Galloway. Just a little guy, faster than everybody. He's somehow always behind the last safety. Um, I think he can continue filling that role if that's what we need him to do, but I'm interested to see if he can if he can change his game up enough to to make an impact elsewhere. Yeah, and he did get a couple carries out of the backfield, which was pretty interesting to see. Um, I think that's one thing that I'm really looking forward to next year, seeing how much they um, you know bring some jet sweeps and stuff like that using running backs and wide receivers. Um, that's really something I'm looking forward to. All right, let's let's go to our next topic. Uh, we've got a couple new coordinators. Uh, Brian Van Gorder is hired as the defensive coordinator, and Mike Denbrock gets, uh, I don't want to say he gets a raise, he gets promoted to the offensive coordinator, although Brian Kelly did mention that he will be calling the plays next year. Um, I wanted to ask you, did you think that there needed to be a, an infusion of new blood in the coaching staff, and uh do you think that Brian Kelly succeeded in, in, in doing so? Um, I personally think there did need to be a change on the defensive side of the ball. I didn't necessarily think it needed to be Diaco. Um, I'm glad that he got his he got his chance to go out to uh, UConn and take over that program. Um, but I think there needed to be some some change there as far as um, I thought I thought we were getting stuck into Ben, but don't break. Um, and trying to cover everything and ending up covering nothing. Um, I think we put a lot of pressure on our safeties, especially um, to be able to both come down and play the run um, as well as in passing situations cover more than one uh, responsibility. Um, I think a good example of that is in the Alabama game. We tried to simplify everything so much that we simplified it too much and let Alabama um, take advantage of our tendencies. Um, And at the beginning of the season, I thought that Diaco was – he was really turning the page um, in our games against Temple and Purdue and Michigan. Um, he was trying to play more cover one, press coverage, bringing some blitzes, um, switching things up. And then I think after the Michigan game, 
after, you know, Devin Gardner started throwing balls behind his head to every receiver he possibly could. Um, I think he kind of backed off of it. I think he thought that we didn't have the skills to be able to do it. Um, and I, I kind of wish he had stuck with it. I kind of, I kind of think that, you know, with the personnel we had in the secondary um, and the younger players we had in the secondary, he probably would have been able to push through it. There would have been some growing pains, but I think we would have been much better for it. And given, you know, how last year was, you know, I don't want to say it was a throwaway, no years a throwaway in college football, but given the situation that we had with Golson and um, with everything else going on around the program, I think it, he missed an opportunity to do that. So I'm kind of hoping that um, Brian Van Gorder will come in and, you know, dial up the pressure a little bit more, um, maybe switch some coverages around, put some less pressure on our safeties, um, and hopefully, you know, our defense picks it up from where they were. Um, on on the offensive side of the ball, I mean, that's Brian Kelly. That's what he's going to do. He's going to be the one in charge. Um, for everybody who said, you know, I hope we hire an outside coordinator, um, I don't think Brian Kelly's ever going to do that. I think he'll hire position coaches, and he'll bring them up in his um, system, and he'll hire them up to offensive coordinator like he's done here. Um, or he'll hire somebody back in that was already part of his system, and I don't think that's going to change. I think his offensive system is what he knows, what he trusts, um, and that's what he's going to hire to from here on out. Going back to what you said about the defense, um, in that Michigan game, Jeremy Gallon caught eight passes for 184 yards and three touchdowns. Um, I kind of agree with you. I thought maybe we should have stuck with the pressure a little bit more. I think that was just kind of a freak performance by Michigan and Gardner and Gallon. Um, do you think the season would have played out any differently if we stuck with it? Um, I do think it would have. I think I don't know if the win or win loss total would have changed, but um, I think we would have seen Max Redfield a little earlier. He would have had much simpler reads. Um, he wouldn't have been as he wouldn't have been required to support the run game. And I think what you saw in the bowl game where Diaco wasn't the coordinator was um, they let Redfield get out there and take a run. Um, and I think they simplified things enough for him where it would work. Um, and I think. You know, if we had gone down the whole season putting more pressure and more pressure on, I think, you know, it gives teams things to think about when they're going in, and um, you kind of have to throw your your defensive backs to the fire a little bit in the first few games, which we obviously saw against Michigan and we saw against Purdue to some extent, but that's how they know not to mess up. <laughs> right. Um, now, on the offense, um, I think a lot of Notre Dame fans feel like you know, there wasn't good communication between Brian Kelly and whoever the offensive coordinator was, um, whether it be Chuck Martin last year or the year before that or Molnar in the previous two years. Um, but I think if you go back and look at 2012, there really weren't as many issues with Golson having to burn timeouts and stuff like that and getting the plays in. Um, we did see that problem creep up again last year. Um, is that something you're still worried about? Um, would you say that's probably the biggest concern still in terms of just you know coaching and, and play calling, or is there another issue you think is a concern with Brian Kelly and his uh, relationship with Mike Denbrock? Um, I'm not too worried about the relationship between him and Denbrock. I think um, probably as part of this promotion to offensive coordinator, I think Kelly and him probably sat down and laid out the responsibilities that they would have, and I don't think he would have 
promoted Denbrock if he didn't think that he was going to be able to uh, accept those. Um, I'm not too worried about getting the plays in on time because I expect a lot more up-tempo with Golson. Um, there was one point last season, I believe um, it was the Air Force game or maybe the Navy game, um, where we actually went up-tempo for a couple couple series. Um, mm-hmm. And Brian Kelly's comment was, it's very difficult to run call-it-and-haul-it type plays with Tommy Reese at the helm, um, because if you call a running play and they stack the box against the running play, you don't have anybody to pull the ball down and run it around the end. Um, so I think as far as that goes, we're not going to see as many checks as we saw with Tommy Reese. I don't think any quarterback ever will have as many checks <laughs> as Tommy Reese did. Um, but I fully expect to see you know quick, more up-tempo, um, something that we've all been hoping for for the past four years. I think this year is the kind of put-up-or-shut-up year, and hopefully we see it. We'll have Golson at the helm, and he's the one who can run it. So. Yeah, the thing is, I, have we ever not run dump tempo well when we've done it during Brian no. Kelly's? I mean, tenure? even when we ran it with, we ran it the very, I think it was either the first series or the second series against USC, and we ran it extremely well. Every play we had went for over 10 yards, it seemed like, and, you know, I'm surprised why we don't do it more. Um, I'm I'm firmly in the camp of, as far as football in general goes, um, if you're not running no huddle up tempo you're missing out you're <laughs> giving you're giving your offense a disadvantage from the beginning so um, I have a strong feeling about that so hopefully we see it this year yeah and I think with the up tempo and uh, I think this might surprise some of the uh, the hell rumpfers out there I think they're gonna see when they go up tempo that Brian Kelly is going to be a lot more uh, comfortable running the ball especially with a mobile quarterback and I think that's a, something exciting to look forward to next year I'd, I'd agree with that. I'm interested to see kind of um, with the up-tempo, I'm interested to see how he handles third and five or more. Um, some schools that run the up-tempo, uh, they'll run it no matter what. They'll go, you know, they'll throw a pass on first down incomplete, they'll throw a pass on second down incomplete, and they'll just hurry up right into third and ten. Um, some schools will, you know, run a couple plays, and then depending on the third down situation, they'll look to the sideline for their play and, you know, get in the right play. Um, I'm interested to see how Brian Kelly handles that. Um, I kind of think that he's going to be a let's take a break if it's, you know, third and four or more, if we yeah. can't whatever we call um, isn't going to work. Let's look over to the sideline and run the meerkat offense. You know, everybody pops their head up and looks over. Um, <laughs> I think I think that's kind of how he's going to operate. I'm interested to see, you know, what other wrinkles he throws into the hurry-up no-huddle and, you know, when he breaks away from it and when he doesn't. I'm interested to see that. Yeah, I'm okay with, you know, changing it up. I think that's actually a pretty good tool. I know Chip Kelly talks about that a lot, how everyone thinks that Oregon's on – you know, up-tempo, full blast all the time, but it actually changes a little bit <clears throat> Excuse me, throughout the game. I think my my one thing in terms of up-tempo is if you just got a big play of, say, let's say 10 yards or more, run the hurry up and get the next play in quickly. I think that is really hard to defend at the college level. Right, and why not run the exact same play? So you run the exact same play against the exact same defense, you know. That's a lot. That's what that's what I think Oregon does so well, and what they have done in the past is, you know, 
they'll throw a pass down the seam for 20 yards and then immediately get back up to the line and you'll see them run the exact same play and throw the exact same pass down the seam for 20 yards. And um, I think that's something that Notre Dame has been missing out on the past couple of years when they get to the line and have to do all their checks and give the defense time to react and substitute and all that stuff. All right. Um, our fifth topic here, we're going to turn our gaze towards more national topics here. Um, a couple new coaching hires around the country. We're going to talk about Texas and Penn State. The Longhorns hired Charlie Strong away from Louisville. Um, guy has a really good resume, not so much as a head coach, but stretching back as an assistant and a coordinator. Um, 20 years of a really good coaching. Um, fair to say he did a really good job at Louisville. Um, I'm not sure how high of a ceiling he'll have at Texas, but... Um, you know, I think he's going to be doing a lot of good things. Let's talk about the Longhorns first. What do you think about Strong going to Texas? Um, you think he's a good hire, great hire, a decent hire, bad hire? What do you think? Um, I think he's actually a great hire for them. I think um, he's the type of coach that will bring Texas a huge shakeup. Um, and I'm sure that you've seen, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners have seen, the uh, list of rules that he just presented to all of his players. Uh, Lou Holtz you know, rules. Yeah, the Lou Holtz rules. Um, you know, they all have to live in the same dorm. Um, I'm sure there will be a lot of good, uh, smart, nerdy kids in there to help them with their homework. Um, <laughs> uh, he's he's going to give them a shakeup that, you know, I think under Mac Brown, I think a lot of the, just from reading a lot of the Texas um, blogs and a lot of the information that's coming out of Austin is, um, I think for under Mac Brown, the team was kind of disjointed and, you know, there were cliques and um, they weren't really a team. It was just a group of really highly rated recruits from Texas that all went to go play for Texas. Um, I think Charlie Strong is going to provide them with, you know, a little more backbone. I'm sure some of the kids will leave. I'm sure the recruits that he brings in will be ready to go, though. Um, and I think it's going to be a really good hire for Texas in the long run. Now, I've kind of contended in the past that um, one of the things that makes it really hard to win at Notre Dame is you're bringing kids from all over the country. Um, you know, some of the kids don't have much in common. Um, at Texas, you kind of have the reverse where – all the kids have so much in common. But I think, you know, when it's a place like Texas and you're bringing in 95% or 98% Texas recruits all within a two or three hour driving distance of Austin, um, you know, I think that can kind of lead to a lot of staleness and people getting too content. Um, I think one of the things I've said before is I think they need to go out and get some more national recruits and shake things up. And I'm really interested to see how strong goes out and recruits, especially in Florida, where he's had a lot of success uh, over the past 10 or 15 years. Right. It'll be interesting to see if he can go into Florida or even some of the SEC states and see um, what he can bring in, um, especially along the defensive line, which is what seems to always come out of those states. Um, it'll be interesting to see how he also balances that with, I think, what uh, what Texas is always known for is we're going to get the top recruits out of Texas and now he has to not only fight against Texas A&M, but he has to fight against Baylor. Um, so I'm interested to see where Texas ends up on both fronts, both nationally and within Texas. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but if you had to throw uh, a number out for next year, how good do you think Texas is going to be? you think it's going to be more of a, a gradual improvement, or you think it's going to be uh, pretty sudden? I, I would say it's going to be pretty sudden. I think 
has I don't think Texas has ever recruited poorly. So um, I think they've got the players in place as long as they buy into what um, Charlie Strong is selling. Um, I think they're going to do pretty well. Obviously, they need to find a quarterback. I think that's that's the one of the largest um, holes on their team right now. Um, they've got athletes everywhere. They're going to be just fine. I think they've got all the tools there to have a quick turnaround. Um, hopefully, it's not for Texas's sake. Hopefully, it's not a Charlie Weiss or a Brady Hoke turnaround where they're great one year and then everything seems to fall apart. But um, I think he's definitely got the tools there to put a run together next year. Yeah, kind of. I look at Texas and you just kind of say, well, yeah, their defense hasn't played great over the past couple of years. I thought they were way worse last year than 2013. But, uh, you know, it's almost like you don't have a quarterback, you're not going to win at a very high level. And Case McCoy, I'm just looking at his stats here 11 touchdowns, 13 picks, and only 329 attempts. We'll have David Ash coming back next year and the highly touted Tyrone Swoops, who played a little bit last year. Um, Burned his redshirt on only 13 attempts. Uh, so we'll see how that quarterback uh, controversy plays out uh, over the spring and summer. Let's let's turn to Penn State. Um, there, James Franklin from Vanderbilt. Uh, I believe he was only coaching there for three years. That's his only head coaching job uh, in his life. Uh, more skeptical of this hire? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think I, the word I would use to describe the hire is interesting from uh, Penn State's perspective. Um, part of me thinks, you know, he'll do just fine. I mean, he did he did well at Vandy, which is an extremely hard school to do well at. Um, you're, you can sell the school, you can sell the SEC, but um, when you sell the SEC, you also have to sell the point that you're not one of the best teams in the SEC. Um, so he had some recruiting disadvantages there that I'll be interested to see what he can do at Penn State. Um, obviously, he's already trying to uh, bring some folks with him, <laughs> um, as if you can believe what's what you read in the news. Um, I'm interested to see also if he's going to only just shoehorn this into an NFL job or another job in two or three years. Um, I kind of would have liked to see him stick around at Vanderbilt a little bit longer. I think what he was doing there was good, and it would have been nice to see him you know, build the program up a little more. Um, but I can't blame the guy for taking a job at one of the premier programs in the country, um, even though it's a little down. Um, I'm also interested to see what the NCAA has to say about uh, the sanctions that are there, and I wonder if Franklin had any um, inside information or assumptions around the sanctions when he took the job. So um, we'll see how that plays out over the offseason, and uh, we'll see what Franklin has next year. You know who he kind of reminds me of is another Eastern PA guy, is L. Golden. Uh, you know, a lot of people were impressed with what he did at Temple. I kind of struggle with, you know, on the one hand, you know, you can't really expect Vanderbilt to do a whole lot in the SEC, and even with, within their own division in the SEC East. But it's almost like, you know, there's, there's a cap on how good you can get, which makes, which makes him look good as a coach, but... I'm not sure how high of a ceiling he can have at Penn State. You know, it's like it's not really a good comparison, but Brian Kelly goes undefeated and has, you know, three really good seasons at Cincinnati, and you can tell that he's, you know, there's greatness inside of a coach like that. I don't know if you can say that about Franklin. I think that's really hard to judge a coach like that, and that's probably why he wanted to get out of Vanderbilt anyways. See, right. 
Right. He kind of. That's why I think it was interesting because he's kind of a borderline candidate. He's not. He's not somebody that you look at and say, "Oh man, he's put together multiple BCS uh, bowl games uh, runs together at Vanderbilt." He's you know, he's gotten to the SEC championship game two times in his three years or anything like that. He hasn't done any of that. He's just been solid in a tough conference, and um, you kind of wonder what he's going to be able to do at Penn State. Obviously, it's not as tough of a conference, and he's got a couple of recruiting advantages at Penn State that he didn't elsewhere. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, I'm just looking at their schedule from the past few years. Uh, Franklin was uh, 0-12 against ranked teams. So on the one hand, yeah, he built up Vandy, but, I mean, I think as a, if I was a Penn State fan, I think I would have liked to seen you know one or two or three upsets of ranked teams, and I don't know how much you can ask Vanderbilt to do that, but I think if you know this guy's really the real deal, I think he would have seen that. So I think that kind of puts a damper on things from my perspective. At least. No, I I agree. I think um, something I was thinking of when you when you referenced Al Golden, and then you said that he hadn't had much success before he got the big job is. Um, he reminds me a little bit of Ty Willingham, who I'm looking at Ty Willingham's Stanford career, and he was there, and he was 44-36-1 before we hired him in at Notre Dame, and he had just won the Pac-10 title, um, but he wasn't a slam dunk hire. He hadn't put together you know, undefeated seasons, and um, he didn't have a track record of great success winning championships and things like uh, you know Brian Kelly has had. So it's interesting to see, you know, Kind of, I want to. I don't want to say big programs making the same mistakes that we did, um, but we'll see how it plays out for Penn State. You know, that's the first time that someone has said Pac-10, and it sounded weird to me. Uh, Pac-12 <laughs> Pac had always sounded weird, and I think I finally got used to it. You've made the change. <laughs> yeah, that's it's going to happen over the next five, six years. Yeah, we won't have any of the same conferences anymore, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> All right, another another topic here. We're gonna focus on the national champions, uh, Florida State Seminoles. Kind of uh, killed everyone on their way to the national title game. Um, the actual national title game itself was a great game. They came back and won that one. Um, what 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 were your thoughts of the national title game and and what you thought saw out of uh, Florida State this season this past season? Um, I think they were clearly the best team. Um, Probably about halfway through the season, I started really believing that they were the best team and they weren't just a uh, Jameis Winston hype machine. Um, they played extremely well in the second half of that BCS National Championship game. Um, the fact that they went into halftime down and were still able to pull it together and you know put some points up on the board in the second half really goes to show that you know they're going to fight through some trouble. They're they weren't just a uh, stroll into the national championship game and then, you know, lay a huge turd. But um, I think Jameis Winston next year will probably be a little better than he was this year. Obviously, he's got another year under his belt. But um, I'm interested to see how their defense holds up um, after losing Jernigan in the middle. Um, I think he was a, a big reason that their defense was able to hold, you know, Clemson down a little bit. Um, but obviously they're just going to try to outscore everybody next year. So I'm not looking forward to that as far as our defense is concerned. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty scary on offense this past season. Um, they averaged 7.67 yards per play. I know, like I said in the in my write-up before the game, they didn't have a very particularly hard schedule, but 
anytime you're putting up those numbers, it's it's pretty scary. And you know, I think and I, this is kind of something I'll talk about in this four-part series I'll be rolling out soon. They really weren't very run-heavy. They're about 52% runs or 53% runs, I think, are right around there. Um, yeah, they ran the ball 505 times and only threw it 442 times. But, uh, you know, once you get that dynamic quarterback, you can do a lot of great things on offense, and they're going to be a tough team to beat with Winston, especially on the road. Yeah, I think that's without a doubt the hardest game we're going to have. Um, we still don't know exactly. I think, do we know that it's in the middle of the season now? Have they have they finalized that schedule yet? Yeah, it's right in the middle of a pretty tough run, I think. I can pull it up. I think it was it's in between uh, Carolina and I want to say another tough game. But yeah, uh, that's when it's going to be really tough to win. Yeah, I think... I think at least before that game, it's uh, we're lucky it's not the first game of the year. Um, I think before that game, we'll have a good idea of what our defense can do, and we'll have a good idea of just how explosive our offense is. I think most of us are thinking that with Golson back and with the weapons we have at wide receiver, we should be able to put points up on anybody. Um, and going into that game, going into Doak Campbell, I think we'll know, you know, do we have to outscore Florida State, which is a tall order, or is our defense going to be able to put up enough of a fight that, um, you know, we can just be normally efficient and still, you know, eke out a win? Um, I'm leaning towards the we might have to get into a shootout with Florida State next season, which does not excite me. But <laughs> Yeah, I got the schedule up here. It's at the end of a pretty decently tough stretch um, at Syracuse, home to Stanford, home to North Carolina, and then at Florida State is the end of that four-game stretch. We have to buy after the Florida State game, prior that's, to Navy. Yeah, that's pretty tough. It'll be. Inter I'm also interested to see, this is kind of a side point, but I'm interested to see what North Carolina does about their whole uh, investigation into their uh, student affairs and everything. The uh, looks like they're not doing too well in school. <laughs> yeah, trying to read up on something about that, and uh, I went to the North Carolina site on SB Nation, and I don't want to say they didn't think it was a big deal, but they seemed to think that it was. Uh, they're trying to turn the page, and the media keeps bringing it up. That's at least what I got out of it. So I don't know what's going on with that school right now. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. All right. Last topic here, and I'm going to throw a bit of a hypothetical out um, to you. Recruiting is finishing up for the 2014 cycle. Uh, National Signing Day is in about two weeks plus three days. Uh, we're getting down to the wire in our day. I'm trying to throw some offers out there late in the game, trying to get guys to come visit. This is the hypothetical I want to ask you. Would you rather take a three-star defensive tackle right now or have Isaiah McKenzie sign? Um, I'm going to ruffle some feathers, especially one of our fellow writers. I'm going to ruffle... Uh, I'm going to ruffle four-point shooters' uh, feathers a little bit. Um, I would rather take the DT recruit. Um, Isaiah McKenzie's a great athlete. Um, I think he's wherever he signs. I hope he signs with Notre Dame. But um, in your hypothetical, if I can only choose one, I'm going to take the DT recruit. Uh, my reasoning is the more bodies you can put on the front line and into the two deep, the better chance you have somebody who you bring in and you don't think is going to necessarily do too great, but develops into a Capron Lewis Moore type player. Um, somebody who by the time they're a junior or a senior is a solid 
to very strong contributor to your front to your front line, um, and you can bolster that with occasionally getting a four star or a five star along your front line. Um, and it also provides more protection against injury, which we saw this past season where our top three defensive linemen were all injured the entire season, um, and we kind of went through our two deep very quickly. Um, I think along those front lines where you're going to get rolled up on, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get some injuries. You're carrying more weight, so you're more prone to certain injuries. Um, I think having that extra defensive tackle in there is very important. Um, the reason I would take the tackle over Isaiah McKenzie is because I think McKenzie's a great athlete, um, but I think Brian Kelly um, has had some issues developing athletes in his mold. Um, the people I'm thinking of are Devontae Neal and Theo Riddick and George Atkinson III. Um, I think we, I think Brian Kelly values consistency over, you know, explosiveness. Um, and I don't see us bringing Isaiah McKenzie in and saying, here, you're the jet sweep guy. We're going to give you the ball five times a game. And if you break it, great. If not, no big deal. Um, and then you'll be a punt returner and kick return specialist. Um, I think our offense across the board is very solid. Um, with Golson and all of the wide receivers that we currently have. Um, and I'm not sure that McKenzie fits into one of the positions that we have in our offense. Um, I think he would kind of come in and need a different position, you know, built for him um, that we don't necessarily have in our offense. Um, and then my last, my last point is if the, if that's the case, if we don't have a position for him and, you know, we would need him to adapt to a position that we have, there's a chance that he can't do that, and then are we willing to use one of our scholarships on what amounts to a punt return, kick return specialist, um, or would we like to get more value out of that scholarship by bringing in another defensive tackle? So those are my those are my points on that one. Do you know which one I'm going to pick? <laughs> I think you're going to pick McKenzie. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, <laughs> not, I don't you know I don't really uh, disagree with it, with anything you said. Um, obviously, this is just a hypothetical, and hopefully, we can take. Both. Yeah, why uh, not Why not both? <laughs> Hopefully it'll be two, two defensive tackles in McKenzie. There you go. Um, I think, you know, if I would say why McKenzie, um, if I was going to look at it in terms of the defensive tackle, um, I'm not sure if that freshman is going to have an impact right away. So to me, you know, it's another body, which is nice, but I don't know if that three-star true freshman is going to be able to do anything in 2014 where, you know, I think we, we need a little bit of help there. Um, looking at it in terms of McKenzie, I think he's an impact player right away. Now, I, I do understand what you were saying about, you know, he might not be someone who's featured on offense right away as a freshman. Um, there could be some problems trying to find him a position. Maybe the coaches want to put him on defense at some point, and he doesn't want to do that. Um, you know, we're we're not even bringing up the academic side of this. Uh, we'll just kind of leave that aside. But uh, I think, you know, from my point of view, I think McKenzie kind of has uh, the ability to transform the offense a little bit and get Brian Kelly to start using that slot receiver, which is, I think is something that he needs to, uh, I think he needs to, you know, start putting that slot receiver out there on, on base plays uh, in, in your base scheme. Um, I, and I really do. I like McKenzie a lot. I think he's a dynamic athlete. Um, I'm not sure how good of a receiver is. I know he did play receiver in high school. So, uh, you know, 
but I think he can come in and, and I think he can start in slot receiver. I really do. I know um, it might not happen right away uh, in the first few games of the season, but uh, I think he's dynamic enough that he can really help us out in offense. And, you know, I, punt returns and kick returns, we, we need help there. Um, you know, I wasn't the biggest GA3 fan on kick returns, but he was solid enough back there, and he's gone. Uh, TJ Jones isn't going to be doing punt returns. He was solid in 2013, and we need we need the help there. So, uh, you know, just from my point of view, I think we'd take McKenzie in this hypothetical uh, just because he has more of an impact right away, um, even if that defensive tackle probably has uh, as big of an impact or bigger impact uh, two or three years down the road. I think I think that's where I think that's where I disagree with you the most is I think I think the defensive tackle has the bigger impact two or three years down the road, but the impact that he'll have two or three down years down the road is so much larger than the impact that McKenzie would have in 2014. Um, I think you would want to build that because I think you could cover up what you'd be losing out with McKenzie. I think you could put Amir Carlisle back for kickoffs. We saw him return kickoffs in the Rutgers game and do pretty well at it. I'd like to see what he can do all year at that. Um, Punt returns, I'd like to see somebody step up like TJ Jones stepped up and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be great at it. Um, I think we've got people on the roster that can do that right now. Um, We don't have that sixth or seventh defensive tackle that we need in order to have the depth and the skill to you know, keep building for the future. So that would be that would be my argument back back to you. So, all right. Well, <laughs> even though we do kind of disagree on this, it's all right because we're going to sign both of them. Exactly. Don't have to worry about it. And everything will be peaches and cream when National <laughs> Sign Day comes around. Exactly. Uh, actually, I would throw out there we might have to uh, sign a defensive tackle after National Signing Day. Um, I think Sawyer's from Vanderbilt might be visiting after National Signing Day, so. Uh, we might see one of those uh, post NSD signings, which is our, yep. which are always fun. Yep. If there's anything that Notre Dame fans are good at, it's waiting and not freaking out when somebody doesn't sign right on National Signing Day. So, yeah, let's hope it uh, works out better than the Devontae Neal um, <laughs> yep. saga. All right, that's going to wrap up our 23rd episode of the OFD Podcast. I want to thank Pat for coming on. Uh, how how'd you like your first podcast? Um, it was pretty good. I think uh, I'm happy that I didn't have to be on camera because my uh, Brian Van Gorder uh, suit jacket uh, fits just as poorly. So, <laughs> all right, we'll have to help you out. Uh, maybe get you something that fits a little better. <laughs> all if right, you make sure. Yeah, that'll work. All right, we're taping this on a Saturday. Hopefully, this, this is up on a Sunday. Uh, check everything out on the site this upcoming week. We got some fun stuff coming up. Um, I'll be rolling out the first of my four-part series looking at the run game, so I hope everyone likes that and that has a lot of discussion. Uh, We'll have some recruiting stuff on Monday along with all the other usual stuff. Uh, I'm Eric, that's Pat, and we will see you in another week or two. Go Irish.